0: Asked you guys recently to share your irrational fears. So here's a sampling of some of the things that you guys said are some of your weird irrational fears. Someone said moths. Okay. Those can be a little terrifying. I understand that. People sleepwalking. That's an interesting one. Someone got started and they had a difficult time stopping. So they put birds, clowns, small spaces, earthquakes happening while on a Ferris wheel. She had a difficult time stopping. (laughs) Someone said, and this is a funny one, putting your hand at the bottom of a bag. (laughs) She said that she was afraid that something would reach out and I think bite her or grab her or take her. I don't know. Someone said, people who smile with a slight gap at the front of their teeth. I went to look in the mirror to see if I had a gap. I'm like, I don't want to smile at this guy anymore. <laughs> I'm terrified. He's going to be afraid of me now. I don't have a gap, but I just wanted to look. Someone said, Venus flytraps. Get that. Those can be terrifying. Uh, ladybugs. I don't understand that one, but I guess that's the point of an irrational fear. Someone said, slip and slides, because there's so many things that could go wrong, which is rational, so I don't know if that counts as an irrational fear. Being locked in a room with no escape, someone said people, someone said styrofoam, (laughs) someone said left turns at a stoplight, heights, and one of my personal favorites, Girl Scouts. (laughs) They're terrifying cookie selling. (laughs) These guys are so threatening and dangerous. I have an irrational fear about people spoiling movies. just want you to know that whoever... Was playing cahoots with us. See me after class. (laughs) There was a fear about a year or two before you were born, and the fear was titled under the moniker Y2K. How many of you guys know about that? You guys know about Y2K? This is before you were born, but this terrified everybody. It stirred everyone up into a frenzy. Stands for Year Two Thousand, right? Year two Y2K. Year Two Thousand. There was fear because the computers weren't, at least they didn't realize, the computers weren't prepared to handle the numerical shift from 9-9 back to 0-0. And the reason why is because in that day, computers were written with code that only included the last two digits of the year because they found it redundant to have the 19 there all the time. So in order to save memory and optimize computing, they would only use the last two digits. Well, that was fine and well until we got to the turn of the century. And now you have year 2000 threatening the very existence of humanity. Now, I know you weren't alive for this, but people were really freaking out about it. It was a terrifying experience. People started saying, well, we have to take classes and learn how to defend ourselves. And so people would take classes about survival, how to build fires in the woods, how to create a shelter, how to defend yourself against people who are trying to steal your things. I mean, seriously. So they started hoarding toilet paper and buying canned goods. People started doing things like hoarding gas, food, water. People built underground shelters. I mean, this is as as funny as as it could be. I mean, people got really terrified. In fact, it was so scary and so tumultuous a time that a pastor preached a sermon on it. I won't tell you who, but there's the information if you want to go look it up. People were terrified about what would happen. So finally, the time came. It was moments before the year 2000 would change on the computers, and it finally hit, and what happened happened? absolutely nothing. Well, not absolutely nothing. There was a few small things that happened as a result of the numerical shift. But having said all that, it was kind of an unfounded fear. And I think the computer programmers did their great work in making sure the computers were ready. But there are two numbers that you should be at least aware of. Maybe not afraid of. Maybe some of you should be afraid. But there's two numbers you should be afraid of. It's numbers 1 and 9, 19. And that stands for Revelation 19. Turn your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at just five or six quick verses. These numbers, Revelation 19, represent the culmination, the end of humanity, or at least humanity as we know it. It's not an empty thread. It's not Y2K of things that may go wrong. This is what's going to happen. We're looking at the book of Revelation, which actually is the the description of Jesus' second coming. In Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' first coming, his first advent, we say. This is his second advent. When Jesus comes back, this is what it's going to look like. And I promise you, if you were to take this seriously, this is going to sober you up and prepare you for what's about to take place. It's going to help you be spiritually mature and aware of how you should be living your life in light of the present threat. Revelation chapter 19 is written by the apostle John. He's, he's exiled on the island called Patmos. It's about the year A.D. 90. So A.D. 90, we're looking at about 1,900 years ago. And he's seeing a vision about what the end of the age is going to look like. And in this vision, Revelation 19 is kind of the closing chapter of all that he's experienced so far. This chapter is terrifying. It's a terrifying chapter. Um, it's good news, too. There's a, there's, a, there's a great turn of events where you see everything remade. Humanity is as it should be. But before we get to that point, we have to go through this very difficult and dark time. Revelation 19 begins like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, look, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he what? judges and makes war. Really, the way we ought to start this out, young people, is this. Point number 1, you ought to be prepared. Jesus is coming back. And as you saw in the description, this return is not something that you and I should trifle with. It's actually something that is deeply meaningful for all of humanity, not just Christians, not just non-Christians. Everyone is going to see this. Everyone is going to witness what's about to take place. The dead, the living, everyone in, in between. So you have to be prepared. When I was a young man, I was in this thing called Royal Rangers. It's It's the Pentecostal Christian alternative to Boy Scouts. Follow that? Okay. I was in Boy Scouts for Christians. And so uh, I went and took a road trip to Missouri where we were having a big camp camp out. Like hundreds of guys, maybe thousands of young men were going to Missouri to camp at this place. It was great. It was one of my first times out of California, which was fun for me. Um, However, I learned that in other states, there's this other thing called weather Where weather can be bad, it's not always seven degrees and blue skies and, you know, no rain. This place, we got there, and not too long after we'd been there, I noticed that the sky was rapidly changing. It was blue and mostly clear, but suddenly I started seeing these massive clouds approaching the campsite not a big deal. I mean, it's a cool cloud, but I didn't realize that those clouds actually were foreboding. They were threatening. They actually had this weird greenish blue tint that I'd never seen before in, in California. And so I, I said, God, it's kind of cool to look at. Except I didn't realize that there was people around me looking at those same clouds and realizing, uh-oh, there's something askew here. I'm oblivious. So uh, we're hanging out, having a good time, and suddenly the wind picks up. And I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. Out of nowhere, the wind starts picking up. And suddenly, these clouds are now starting to drop rain on us. And I'm thinking, OK, well, that's interesting. Weather's changing quickly here. I guess that's a thing for Missouri. So not only that, but now you start hearing uh, lightning and thunder. And these clouds, which come out of nowhere, suddenly pick up and get really threatening and dangerous, where the leaders, when the adults are getting scared, you start getting scared, right? And so the leaders are like, run for shelter, run for shelter. And I'm like, shelter? What shelter? I'm looking around. right? at a campsite. There's nothing. And so we found the, the closest thing to a shelter we could find. And it was this—it was a brick, uh, you know, a concrete bathroom with a tin roof. Like that looks safe. Let's go in there. (laughs) So we all run into this bathroom. We run into this bathroom, and we can hear the wind pushing, and you know, the the cracking of the the lightning and the thunder, and all the stuff that's happening around us. And of course, the people that know what we're looking at are saying, "There's a there's a possibility of a tornado to touch down here. We got to be careful and be prepared." I wasn't prepared for that. None of us were prepared for that. So we waited. And we stood inside this makeshift shelter. And then the tornado hit, and we all died. (laughs) Because we weren't prepared. See? It all fits together. It all fits together. We weren't prepared. I wasn't very Obviously, we lived. But we weren't prepared for what was about to take place. In fact, I had no idea that was even a possibility. When we talk about Jesus coming back, I'm telling you, be prepared. Because the first time he came, it was sunshine and roses and lollipops and love and sprinkles and unicorns. But when he comes back, it's the I'll be back kind of threatening, you know, don't, don't take this lightly kind of situation. His second coming is not like his first coming. He wants you to, quote, Scar, Be prepared. To be ready for the second coming. Why? Well, here's a a couple points here. The, The prophecy of Jesus' return is certain. It's not something like the Y2K phenomenon or even the potential tornado touchdown. This is a certainty. It's a reality that's going to take place. Our job is to be ready for its inevitability. Be prepared. It's certain. And so you shouldn't doubt it. Some people look at prophecy and they're confused by it because biblical prophecy can be a bit challenging. One of the most challenging aspects of Bible prophecy is this. You ready for it? It's the fact that Bible prophecy needs to be looked at in a certain way. In the Old Testament, when the, when the prophets were writing down things that were going to take place, they saw it like a mountain range. In fact, here, here's, here's a good example. When you're looking at the front of a mountain range, in fact, I'll just use my fingers to help you out with this. When you're looking at the front of a mountain range, it looks like everything's right on top of itself. But if you look at the sides, you might notice that there's, in fact, a great chasm between those peaks. That happens. That's an optical illusion of sorts. But that's a really good analogy for how biblical prophecy works. When you're looking at Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Christ, the prophets who wrote it thought that this is all one big event. In fact, Isaiah is going to be one of the guys that we're going to look at to see this. But when it comes down to it, what Isaiah didn't realize, that you and I now realize is that there are two comings of Christ. The first one was Jesus' advent, the first coming, when he came to be uh, gracious and loving and kind. But the second coming is different than the first. In fact, it's so different that Jesus, when he's reading prophecies about himself, cuts himself short before he finishes the entire prophecy. It's found in Isaiah chapter 61. It goes like this. I don't have control over my... I do. Okay, I do again. It goes like this. Um, Oh, it went ahead. Okay. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Pause. That's where Jesus stopped. In fact, Jesus put a period there when he spoke it. But you'll notice that right below that, there's a singular line that Jesus did not say. And it says, in the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance. That is to say that when Jesus read this prophecy, he realized that there's two times that he was going to be here. The first time, love, grace, kindness, freeing the captives. And the second time, the scary stuff. Now, why why does this fit under the banner of being prepared and knowing that that his return is certain? That's because the first time he came, he's fulfilling the first 90% of his prophecies. Jesus came the first time and that ought to give you confidence that he's going to come back a second time to finish what he began. So you ought to not doubt it. Be prepared, Scar would say. You also, oops, okay, I'm a little off here. We're gonna come back to that. There you go, there's your second point. The prophecy of Jesus' return is terrifying. Don't presume upon it. The reason I actually brought up that photo in the first place is that I I, I tried to find an artistic rendition of the, the, the Christ that is depicted in Revelation 19, and that was it. The first time Jesus came, I had, I had, I had Evan talk about this last week. He came humble, uh, mounted on a donkey. He was gentle, meek, and lowly. He was raising the dead. He was showing grace to people. He went to the woman at the well and said, hey, woman, I love you. Um, you know, you've got five husbands, but reject that. Come and get living water. He comes and he binds up the broken. He releases the captives. Jesus is as kind and gracious as they come. And that's one of the reasons why we exalt him, because he's so humble. That's what Evan preached about all last week. But... That's only part one. Part two, or act two in the story, is when Jesus comes back, not humble on a donkey, but mounted on a white horse. That white horse indicates that he's a conquering king. He's riding in a processional. He's leading the procession of conquering king who would do justice. He comes first humble, he comes back exalted. He came first with mercy and grace. Jesus came to show kindness to his enemies. In fact, that that was his whole purpose. I came to seek and to save the lost, Jesus says. But when he comes back, is he doing that same thing? No. At this point, he's coming to judge and make war. That's the kind of image of Christ that we don't have at Christmas. We think about Jesus in a manger, baby, meek, mild, lowly, vulnerable. But when he comes back, he's not going to be any of those things. He's going to be the polar opposite. The first time, mercy and grace. The second time, judgment and condemnation. We often think about Jesus being uh, infinitely patient, infinitely loving, infinitely merciful. But think about that for a second. Is Jesus infinitely loving, patient, and merciful? I guess it depends on how you think about it, right? In one sense, yes. So you come to Christ right now, it does not matter how bad you've been. You can find yourself fully righteous in Christ. His grace is enough to cover all of your wicked deeds your thoughts or your actions, whatever it is that you've done, no matter how bad, Jesus can forgive you right now and you could be totally at peace with God. That's amazing. So in that sense, it's infinite. But if you think about it like a boxing match, when that bell rings, that ding, ding, The round's over. (laughs) There's no more opportunity after that. There's no more ability or availability for you to entreat God for peace or patience or mercy or grace. In that sense, then, Jesus' patience is not infinite. Jesus' patience is not infinite infinite. Think about that. That means, and that's why the scriptures say, now is the time for salvation. Now day; is the day. Don't wait. Don't linger because either one of two realities is going to happen to all of us. Reality number one, you're going to die. And for some of you, that might be sooner than you think. Reality number two, Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. If either one of those realities hits before you make yourself uh, available to God and submit to him, you will face his severe unflinching judgment. That's the reality of it. We have to understand that God's patience is not infinite. There is a starting and there is an ending. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Which means, Christian, here's the thing. You ought to be motivated by this reality and not be lazy. You want to realize that what's, what's waiting for us is good and glorious and awesome. But right now, it's time to work. It's time to be clear and articulate to our friends, our families, and our neighbors about who Christ is and what he came to do. When we talk about Jesus being you know, the baby in a manger this Christmas, we need to realize that there's two aspects of who Jesus is. We're seeing the first aspect of his grace and kindness, but the second aspect of who he is is going to be yet revealed. Someone asked in the question of the week, they said this, and it, is it? No, it's not here. There's a saying, the moment you lose respect for your enemy, you've already lost. With that in mind, should we have some level of respect for hell and Satan? I don't know the saying, but I do, I do like the thrust of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You should have a certain type of respect and seriousness for the topics of Satan and hell. Satan is a lion on a leash. God has him. Hell is a threat that has been defanged. It's a lion with no teeth. However, That doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't have a sense of seriousness and sobriety about these topics. Because here's the thing, if you're a Christian, the enemy has been defeated, crushed, vanquished, amazing. But if you're not a Christian here today, this threat is a very real threat for you. And it's meant not to scare you as much as it is meant to show you, wow, God has been so gracious to me in order to crush his son when he should have crushed me. We should have respect. Not respect in the positive sense of like, yeah, I, I esteem you, but respect in a healthy sense of fear, reverence. Why? Because God's patience is limited. And when he finally returns, it's not going to be a good experience for us. If we're not on his side, that is. There's two sides of Christ. The first side we're experiencing right now is mercy hit his grace. But when he comes back, well, let me show you. Here's the next few verses. This is the description of Christ that you saw depicted in that image there. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. That's a word for crowns, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. So you can see him in your mind's eye, right? This glorious, mighty king riding in on a, on a white horse with armies of heaven behind him, arrayed in fine linen, which some people might wonder, well, does that mean like in heaven in the future when Jesus does this, he's actually gonna be on a, an actual horse? He's actually gonna be wearing white robes? And I don't think that's the case. I think what's, what's being depicted here is a, a type of regality. He's regal, he's lofty, he's exalted. I don't know if Jesus is gonna be on an actual horse. I suspect that he won't be. I think this is meant to give us a vision and a picture of what his, his demeanor is, not so much what he's actually, he could be, he could be in, a, in a tank for all I know. But he's, he's coming to crush the enemy. He's using language of the day and images of the day that people would have underst- understood in order to show, look at this wise, exalted, all-seeing king. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There I am in the Bible. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Not a pleasant experience, I mean, okay, so if you just look at this, look at the images here. Sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Is that a real sword? I don't think so. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he uses the sword from his mouth to strike down the nations, not just one people group, all the nations that stand against him. And how is he going to rule them? With a rod of iron, unbending, unbreaking, unflinching, strength, resilience, resolve. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is coming to inflict a wrath that God, his father, is calling him to to take care of. The winepress. What is the winepress? What does that mean? Well, take a look here. Here's an image of a winepress in ancient Israel. You have two vats where after you're stepping on the grapes, the, the juice runs down into the lower vats where the wine would be contained and thus bagged up. So think about this, where Jesus is saying, I've come to tread the winepress, it's Jesus uh, imaging Jesus uh, in the winepress, stomping the enemies under his feet. And as he's stomping the enemies under his feet, the splatter of the juice is running up his garment. And Jesus uses that as an analogy to say, just like me stamping in a winepress would cause grape juice to hit my robe, so will the blood of my enemies be. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Now, that's an image of Christ that we often don't think about, but that actually harkens back to Isaiah chapter 63. In the first six verses, let me walk you through that really quickly because I think it's important that you see this side of Christ. Here's what it says. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra, who is is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And, And this is Jesus. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save and then the, 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 the author, the narrator says, well, why are, your, why are your garments red? Why are your garments like he who treads in the wine presses? And here's how Jesus responds. I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked... But there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, that, again, is a fuller depiction of the way that Christ intends to come back to deal with those who refuse to acknowledge Him and refuse to submit to His gracious rule. It's a difficult image, I know. And it was a bold choice to pick this text for, for Christmas. I know that too. But there's a, there's a sense in which you have to see both sides of the coin here. You can't look at the Christ of Christmas and forget the Christ of the return. You have to see both in your mind's eye because when you appreciate the return of Christ, you will so much more appreciate the first coming of Christ. You're not going to have a good sense of what it means to see Jesus in a manger until you see Jesus as the conquering warrior. And we have to look at both sides of the story to really put the whole picture in our mind's eye. That's the whole reason Star Wars has done such a good job with their franchise. There's like 37,000 movies now, different shoot-offs, and Disney's going to start another series. We're pretty confident of that. But as they, as they finish with episode 9, you're, you're wanting answers to who all these people are. You're wanting answers to see what happens at the end of the movie. Now, if, if, you know, if the Snookian guy and Vader all come and they rule and they win, like the bad guys win, like you would be so disappointed, right? That would be a terrible movie. Or, you know, the uh, Jar Jar Binks becomes the president and he's now the leader. <laughs> Turns out he was Skywalker the whole time. Like, well, you would be like, what is this part? This is a terrible movie. I hate this movie. But if the bad guys win, you want your money back. And movies that end that way, don't you hate those movies when the bad guys win? Like the movies that end, you're like, I paid for this. Like, I want my money back. Our hearts yearn for for a story where the bad guys are crushed and the good guys walk away victorious. And the story that God tells the good guy is God, the bad guys are us. And that's what's important to realize. In our very nature, we stand against God as his enemies, and you ought to be warned because Jesus will crush his enemies under his feet. Jesus will crush his enemies under his feet. You have to often ask, and you go, why is Jesus so angry? Why is Jesus so mad? why is God so mad all the time? And then, you know the old testament looks especially mad, but even though you have this interlude where Jesus is kind and gracious, you have this end of the story where God is mad again. Why is God always so mad? There's at least three reasons for that. Two of them are really kind of the same. But one of the reasons God is mad, think about it like this. If there was a great and kind king who went to his, his subjects, who rebelled against him, and said, guys, I, I just want to be at peace with you. Let, let, me, let me serve you. Let me, I'll die for your sin. I'll pay for your, your, your rebellion. Let me take care of you. they come back into the fold. Come into my kingdom. And they continue to shake their fists at him and say, no, we don't want your rulership. We want to do our own thing. But the king is persistent. And so he sends more people. In fact, Jesus tells a story of the Father sending people this way. He'll say, I'll just send, I'll send my servants to these people. And I'll ask them, hey guys, come on, let's let's work together here. Let me let me save you essentially. And the servants, uh, the, the, the servants beat the master servants. I don't want him. And finally, after sending several servants to them, he says, Okay, let me send my son. Surely they will respect him. And so he sends his son, and what do they do to the son? They treat him the worst. Pull out his beard, make him naked, beat him bloody, and, and pull, you know, put him on a, on a cross and humiliate him as if to say, ha, 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 God, you thought you had us on this one. Huh? You thought you'd melt our hearts with your love? No, thanks. We'll do this ourselves. Thank you very much. I can imagine that God who is so gracious and so kind and so persistent with sinners finally coming to his end and saying, okay, no more. I am done reaching out to you. I've been so kind, so persistent, so enduring with you, and yet you persist to put your hand up against me. Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10 calls that trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's taking the gift of Christ and saying, I don't want that. I would rather step on your sacrifice than to submit to it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 really details the kind of response God has when he says here to quote, he, when you outrage the spirit of grace, says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is angry because we spurned his grace. God is angry because he offers forgiveness and a way to be right with him. And yet we continue to say, no, thank you. I don't want Jesus. Another reason he's angry is because we minimize and celebrate sin. We minimize sin and we celebrate it. Now, I understand that when I say we, I don't mean everyone in this room. We as a people, we as a humanity, we do this. We minimize sin and we celebrate it. We minimize it by making it not a big deal. You know, oh, you lied, you cheated, you stole, you, you know, had premarital sex, whatever. We all make mistakes. It's minimizing sin. But it's worse because we can also take the next step further where it's not just minimizing, it's saying this is a good thing. Romans chapter 1 talks about a type of people that celebrate sin and they applaud and cheer when people are sinning in ways that should, we should look down upon and say, no, I don't want that. In fact, I read of a story recently of a, of a, of a guy who's six foot two, 200 pounds. He is one of the, the players on a female handball team in Australia. Don't laugh. This is a real deal. He goes by the name Hannah Mounsey. He refused no, he was refused the ability to change in the woman's locker. He identifies as a woman. He was refused the ability to do that by his coach and his, I forget who else is involved. But in a stance of protest, he says, well, fine, then I'm not going to play. If you're going to make me change in the male locker instead of letting me change in the female locker. Then I'm not going to play in the game then. And that's a big loss. Again, he's 6'2", 200 pounds. He's a big dude. So he chooses not to play. Some people, of course, as you might imagine, are outraged and, why are you doing this? You're clearly a male. Why are you making this a big deal? Other people are standing up with and, and, and support and adoration of this fellow and saying, you know what, you're doing the right thing, buddy. These narrow-minded, bigoted, fill in the blanks, are so unable to understand where we're at, you need to stand up against this kind of tyranny, this tyranny of thought that suggests that because you have male organs, you're a male. How foolish of them. God looks at that and, and God looks at stuff like that and says, how rebellious must you be to shake your fist at me when I've clearly made it obvious to you that you are a male, you are a female, that the common sense you know, structures in our society that should protect you are now being obliterated in the name of what? In the name of personal sexual liberation. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we talk about this stuff all the time because it's so frequent in the news. You know, when God looks at us as a, as, a, as a people, I wonder what he thinks. I can understand why God is mad. God hates sin enough to crush his son and pour out his wrath upon his son so that we might have a way of dealing with sin. When we, in any way, marginalize sin in our lives by listening to it, by watching it, by speaking it, by harboring it in our hearts, God is offended by that. He hates it. That's why God is mad. I want to point out to you the, the, who Jesus looks like when he comes back. Let me just run through this really rapid fire here. The warning is such, as we look at Jesus in his in His person, here's the warning. Number one, or letter A really, sub-point, you cannot hide from him. I once got in trouble so bad that I, I honestly, <laughs> this is young. My brother's here, by the way. Do you guys see who's here? My brother's here, him and his wife. I won't point them out because I want to embarrass him. But... I got in trouble once, and my dad is a, is, a, is a very threatening guy. I've talked to you about my dad before. Very threatening guy. Strong, has some prison years behind him, so he's, and he's all tatted up. You know. Anyway, I got in trouble once, and I thought, you know what? Now would be the time to run away. I could start a new life. It could be Rodrigo Hernandez, and no one would know the difference. I could just be a new me, <laughs> and, I, and I can live a new life. I can, I can figure things out. I can hide. When Jesus comes, it says here, his eyes are a flame of fire like a flame of fire, which is to say that nothing in his path can be hidden. Like fire, it can remove the chaff. It can destroy anything in its path and see 100% clearly anything in his way. Jesus cannot be hid from. And by the way, lest you think you can be strong enough to overpower him, this is foolish, but his, his, uh, on his head are many diadems. You cannot overpower him. A diadem, a crown, shows that Jesus is crowned with crown after crown after crown after crown ad infinitum. He has crown upon crown because he is the true king who has conquered every single foe that has stood against him. None can stand against Christ. By the way, it says he has a name that only he knows. Uh, he has a name, uh, verse 12, the last part of verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. And this is a peculiar verse. I have to grab This is peculiar to, to say it that way. But I think what it's getting at is that Christ is mysterious in his person. Yes, you might understand Christ the man, but Christ the full deity, the full Godhead, you, you can't wrap your mind around that. Now, I know my wife pretty well. We've been married several years now. 11, 12, hold on. 11 years. I, was, I, I, I know the number. 11 years. I know her pretty well. Know her favorite color, know her favorite food. And I bet as we get older and older, I'm going to have a lot more knowledge about her, a lot of practical knowledge. And as a person, because Kristen is limited, I can have a great deal of information about her. But think about Christ the man, and then think about Christ the God. (laughs) You can know him as a man, sure, but he's God. He's infinite. He has no end. He has no beginning. He is eternal in his being, his nature. You and I have a glimpse of that, but we'll never fully wrap our minds around God. Even Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, said, if you don't know your enemy, you may win a battle. But you're not going to continue to win battles against an enemy you can't understand. You cannot comprehend Christ. You cannot fully wrap your mind around him because he's deity. He is God. Furthermore, uh, as, as it, hasn't, if it hasn't been clear already, you can't defeat him. Why? His clothes and a robe dipped in blood. That is an awesome warrior king image. He's in a, a, a robe dipped in blood and he has a name that he's called the word of God. He's the, he's the one who is indefatigable, which is a fancy word to say he doesn't get tired. He has no way to get weary or, or he doesn't stop to get a glass of water. He's like Jack Bauer in 24. And, and okay, 24, Bauer never took a bathroom break. Like, he never ate. He never, he never slept. Like, the guy was just invincible. And that's one of the reasons I, I actually I love 24 so much, I bought one of his, I bought one of his gun bags and I used it. Not for guns, <laughs> but I used it. And then my wife took it and used it as a diaper bag. Anyway, Jack Bauer, 24, we like, we like him because he's this warrior. He's this awesome fighter guy that can't be beaten. Jesus is that fighter, but to the nth degree. There's no one who has power over him. He's going to crush his enemies. One of my favorite hip-hop artists, Shy Lin, has a song. Me out. I don't want to read it to you because then I feel like I'm, I'm going to be performing. Look up Shy Lin, Our God is in the Heavens. Okay, Shylin, Lin, Our God is in the Heavens. Please go listen to that today. There's a there's a line in there where he says, um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just to give you a piece of this. Um, okay, and though he's and though he's lacking the power to shackle, them, try that again. As though he's lacking the power to shackle them now in the hottest flames, and so they cock and aim the target. His cosmic rain, that's like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. Like, and he says. <laughs> Um, stupid kids who persist in foolishness. It's only by God's power you exist. Now you declare war on the Lord. When before you were born, He formed you in the uterus. I mean, this guy's killer good, right? This is this is so good. God is in undefeatable. You can't you can't overpower him. You can't defeat him. Uh, and and by the way, you can't outnumber him. He's got armies of angels at the ready you know, with trigger, you know, ready to pull the trigger on us. He's, he's got armies and upon armies of pure holy angels and even saints who were dead before us on his side, ready to crush. And more than that, you cannot negotiate terms of peace. Why? Because he has a rod of iron. He is the conquering king. He is the benevolent dictator. He is the one who should truly rule because he is the God of heaven and of earth. You cannot negotiate terms of peace, which of course leads us up to this. He he is calling us right now to surrender. Christian and non-Christian, now is the time to surrender. Christian, here's what surrender looks like for you. It's willfully submitting to his rule and reign in your life right now and its fullest display. You and I know what it's like, Christians, in the room, to see God's word and to say, that's really hard. I'm going to try better on that. But oh, there's got to be something in us that sees the glorious coming Christ and saying, okay, I, I want to work to be pleasing to him. I know he's coming back. I want to serve him in any way that I can. Non-Christian, the gracious king offers peace now, but I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know how long you have in this life. I don't know when his mercy and grace comes to an end for you because there is an end. Again, either death or Jesus' second coming, there is an end to his mercy and grace if you continue to rebel against his gracious rule. Now is the time to surrender. When I end on one verse where he paints the picture just to make it abundantly clear to us. In verse 16, he says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What ought this to do for us? What ought this, how should this affect us? Well, really, this ought to make you fearless. Fearless. If you're a Christian, the King of kings and Lord of lords is the one who governs and rules. And it doesn't matter what all the servants say if the king is on your side. or no, rather, if you're on the king's side. Be fearless. Jesus is the king of kings. Dictionary.com. The word of the year this year is existential. Dictionary.com says the word of the year is active. Apparently people are using it a lot more. I've heard, I've heard you guys use it a couple times. I remember thinking about that. In fact, the only person I actually remember vividly is Miriam. Miriam Izegenahaz. Don't tell her I butchered it. Miriam. Existential. It's, it's a good thing that we as a, as a people are starting to ask questions about, well, why are we here? And now that Christianity has taken a back seat to the, to the public discourse, it's a good question to say, why are we in this life? What are we here to do? In fact, I just saw a show recently at Laguna Hills where the main character goes through an existential crisis of his own. He lives a life where he's in prison for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread, and he, he comes to himself when he's confronted by a bishop who's trying to redeem him. So they bought your soul by giving you this silverware. And the, the character, basically the whole story is about him trying to live his life in a redemptive fashion. And at the end of his story, it's supposed to be beautiful, but it really is tragic. He thinks that in his own heart, he somehow earned his place with God because he's done so many good things, not the least of which raising this young girl whose mother died. And I thought, what a tragic story, but so relevant to the day that we live in today, because that's how most of us understand our lives to be. If you're just good enough, you're you're healthy enough, you're strong enough, you do enough good deeds, your, your existential crisis can be averted because you can be right before God. You're here to honor God. We can all acknowledge that. And the way you do that is by being good enough. Wrong. Deadly wrong. Devastatingly wrong. The reason for which we exist is to honor God, to glorify God. And you'll always come up short, young person. You will always fall short. You'll always be unhappy. You'll always be thirsting for more. You'll always hunger for greater things. If you live for anything less than the glory of God, I 100% guarantee you, promise you that. In fact, you know this. You know this. It's not the point of my point here, but let me just existentially. We're meant to honor, to glorify God. We're here to do that. And when we fear God the way we should, really other fears are overridden. It's like the scene in a movie where the the good guy is running away from the bad guys that are trying to kill him. The good guy runs to the edge of a cliff and the bad guys are behind him with guns or whatever else, and they're threatening to kill him. So he gets to the edge of the cliff and he has a decision to make. I can stay here and hope they show mercy, or I can jump off. And of course, he's going to weigh out his decisions and he's going to make the choice that, that has the, the least amount of fear involved. And usually he jumps off the cliff because that's exciting. Jumps off the cliff, usually falls into a pool of water, swims, he stays down there for a long period of time. The enemies look over, they might shoot a couple times, they wait a few minutes and then he of course swims out over on the, at, the, at, the, at the edge of the beach. His primary fear overrode his lesser fear of heights, of jumping and dying. The same thing is true when we fear our God when we understand that God is the one to be feared, everything else below that fear becomes irrelevant. Not irrelevant to the point of you know, inconsequential, but irrelevant in the sense of I don't have to fear man's approval of me. You may not like what I'm saying right now. I don't care because I fear God more than I fear you. When you go to school and you're worried about how you look, You know, whether or not you smell the right way, whether or not you're the right height, whether or not you're the right body shape, whether or not you're saying the right things, whether or not you're embracing the correct sexuality, whether or not you're smart enough, whether or not you're going to have the right job after high school, whether or not you're perceived as attractive enough. All of these things, they're important in a sense, but they fall so far short when you realize that my primary fear in life, my top shelf important thing is God's honor and his glory. All these other things can fall into place. And all the stress that you carry because of these real fears in your life can be subdued by the greater and godlier fear of having Christ honor first in your life. You want to be free from the shackles of human approval and man's applause? Learn to fear your God. You want to be free from having people think less of you and having, having their opinion drive what you say, do, wear, listen, eat, serve God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things are going to be added to you submit yourself to the fear that squashes other fears and realize that no matter who you're thinking about right now, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I say it all the time, every knee will will bow willingly bended or unwillingly broken. There's not gonna be one single person who's gonna stand up to Christ and say, ha, you made everyone else bow down, but I'm gonna stand up in your presence. Come at me, bro. No one's gonna say that. In fact, the Bible often depicts humans as when they're battling against God, it's a no contest situation. It's not like God is breaking a sweat trying to crush us. In fact, if you notice, when Jesus conquers his enemies, the sword that comes out of his mouth is his word. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus created the world by speaking a word. He destroys you and me, sinners, by speaking a word and destroying us. We can be fearless because we know that God is the only authority that matters. And this Christmas, as you face your friends and your family and anyone else that comes into your realm, and you're intimidated by the fact that you're a believer and the people around you are not, you don't need to fear. You don't need to fear them because you have a much greater, stronger God who's bigger, better, more powerful than they are. You can be confident knowing that God is on your side, or rather you're on God's side, and so you can stand with confidence. And if they hurt you or besmirch your name or talk about you in bad ways, then so be it. Someday we'll be vindicated. I know it's a tough sermon for Christmas. I I get that. It's Christmas. We want positive, upbeat messages. But but here's the thing. I I, I felt like this was important because we needed to have a good theology. We need good theology that grounds us in seasons of great joy and great sadness. And this is that kind of theology, that God is going to come back and fix what is broken. There's a story that broke a couple days ago about a young girl named Olive. She's two years old, and she recently died, kind of suddenly. No one knows exactly what happened, not yet anyway. But her parents are part of a church where they believe the miraculous is meant for the Christian's everyday life. And so they began praying and calling for their church to pray for Olive's resurrection in all seriousness. And they expected that too. And they said things, they, they would create hashtags, wake up Olive. They said things like, Olivia, come out of that grave in Jesus' name. And they meant it. They pursued this young girl's resurrection for seven days. It was only yesterday that they gave up and said, okay, we're going to wave the white flag. We're going we're to give up and just trust that this is God's move. And I'm like, why did they do in the first place? Here's the point for that. I don't want to make fun of that church. I don't want to deal with all the, the errors of their theology right now. But I do want to say this. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology, in fact, all theology has consequences, but bad theology hurts people. That's why it's so important that as you go into the Christmas season that you have a good theology that Jesus is king. Young person, are you living like Jesus is the king of your life? Where in your life does Jesus not have full reign and authority? Where are you compromising? Where are you acting like Jesus is not king? Where are you not modeling his humility? Where are you not submitting to his rulership? Where are you not looking forward and hoping, not in this life, but the next life? What things in your life are you putting all your hope in? Is it material gain? Is it a relationship with somebody? Is it your scholastic prowess? What are you putting your hope in that's going to let you down? Jesus is king. That's the whole purpose of this, this sermon series. Jesus is the one that we look to. Jesus is the one we put our hope in. Jesus is the one we trust in. And that's what I'm calling you to do this Christmas, young person. To put your hope again in Jesus the king, submit to his rulership, and live for his glory. Whether it's Christmas, New Year's, or any other, St. Patrick's Day, or any other holiday in between. It's all about Jesus. On that note, I have so much more to say about Christ. I would love for you, if you haven't done it yet, to sign up for Revival Winter Edition, because there's a lot of things that we... I mean, there's so much I want to unpack about that. If you haven't signed up for that already, please do that. And again, as I've already encouraged you, I would love for you to to get a, to get bring a friend or two with you. Not only because I want them to be there, but, but because I want to have Evan dress up as a baby in <laughs> a diaper and shave his face. Um, one more thing before I pray, young men, we could use your help in flipping the room. So before you guys skedaddle, uh, I'll... Def- I'll refer you to Evan's leadership to to how we're going to do that, but young men, I could use your help. Let's pray.